I have many streams running uh, through my mind tonight, and I think I will begin with my first thought that I had earlier today, our first idea about this evening, and then at some point in the evening I would like to touch again on the, the exciting idea and I, I, it's getting more exciting every moment, uh, the exciting idea of a 100-day retreat that I have a feeling everyone here is going to embark upon together. Set sail. But as I will postpone speaking about that until the latter part of the evening, I'd also like to just give you a little heads up that uh, I'm also thinking that we should postpone the beginning of this retreat until January 1st. So, just put that in your hopper. Based on a series of conversations uh, that I've been having recently and things that I've noticed in, in my own mind and things that people I've been meeting with have been reporting there seems to be an increase I've noticed in self-awareness in the people in my orbit. I don't know, do you notice that in your orbit? Maybe not, you don't hear it in the media circles so much. But closer, the closer we get, the closer the proximity of our observation, at least in my case, I'm noticing that there is an increase of self-awareness and the awareness of, of our bodies, sensitivity to what's happening in our bodies, mostly aware of the top tunes that our minds are playing pretty regularly. And the central tune that our mind seems to play is the, uh, the how wonderful or not so wonderful I am. The, the great protagonist in the, in the great drama of life as it's played through our mind is, is front and center. What is, what is being, um, how I'm showing up, uh, how I'm either above, below, equal, superior, inferior, uh, special, uh, less than, uh, isolated from, connected to lots of conversation about the internal uh, personality view, the self-story. And that's a, it's a painful thing to see. <laughs> it's really painful to see how much selfing goes on in our minds. Do any of you notice that? And I would suggest that as our practice Deepens as our practice of mindful attention deepens. And when I say the practice of mindful attention, I mean making that shift from simply being carried along by the stream of, of our life, automatic pilot, unconscious, reactive, shifting from that automatic pilot to being able to wake up in the midst of it all and notice what it is that's happening in real time popping out, so to speak, or accompanying 
whatever it is that's happening with this uh, quality of open receptivity, curiosity, all the different qualities of mindful attention, uh, energy, brightness, uh, clarity, etc., etc. It seems that the more one practices that, the more one sees the bad news. Now, it's not all bad news. But the bad news is we get to open to all the places in ourselves that are uh, kind of shameful and inflated and all the ways that we feel terrible about ourselves or, or feel much better about ourselves when we can be busy putting someone else down. Comparing, evaluating, criticizing, judging. That's painful to see. But the more we make that shift, that's just part of the process. One of my teachers once said, insight at the beginning is usually bad news. You get to see the, the whole catastrophe, as, as Zorba, the Greek, would say. And it's, it's hard to see. The good news is the more that that um, shift takes place from being just carried along by that stream of habit to noticing that stream of habit to recognizing it, there is a gradual shift of identity, you could say. Gradual shift from the identification with the story that plays through our mind to at least initially more of an identification with, more of a trust in that capacity to know. This is something I like to talk about a lot. Part of that process of moving from that very strong identification with whatever strong belief, strong getting lost in, strong uh, clinging to the stories that play through our mind to noticing them, part of that process is Part of that process of making that gradual shift is has some side benefits. That, that light of attention gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And in fact, the brighter that light of attention gets, the more clear and perhaps even the more painful it is to see our... Uh, fixations, our contractions, our personality views. And that's, so there's always that two-edged sword of increasing light and more obvious sense of contraction and darkness. In fact, when anyone gets used to the natural Great peace, referring to that song that played at the beginning of the evening. When you get used to that natural great peace, and you notice Nosho Kempo doesn't say created great peace. 
says natural great peace. We start to sense this great natural peace that pervades this quality of openness and awareness, this, as he calls it, this vast spaciousness, imbued with this quality of consciousness of knowing. The more we get used to that, the more painful it is when we fall out of that, when we get diminished, fixated, when we get caught up in one of our personality views. Another positive thing about that, we also, as we get used to being awake, we, all, we also begin to recognize, I think you may be able to resonate with this, that when we're simply awake, you could call it again, resting in natural great peace. When we're resting in natural great peace, just purely awake, independent of what may be happening in the, in the mind or body, in terms of the content of our thoughts or our feelings, but when we're resting in that, you could say, pure knowing, Life is very, in spite of what's going on, very simple. It is so utterly simple that we can begin to see in that bare, in that purity of mind, you could say, or purity of view. That's how the Buddha would describe it, purity of view. Where he, in that famous discourse where he said, in the seen, there's just what's seen, and the heard, just what's heard, the smelled, just what's smelled, and the tasted, just what's tasted, and the felt, just what's felt, and the cognized, just what's cognized. That's all. Not much going on, really. So in those moments, we experience, or have the potential of experience, this revelation about the difference between what's actually going on and the embellishments that our mind usually adds to each moment, the drama that turns the present moment into this this main event in uh, that will determine my happiness or unhappiness for for all time. When in one sense, from that, in that most immediate sense, nothing's really happening. Nothing's really happening. I wanted to talk about this because one of those places where, there, where not much is really happening is, believe it or not, is that place where you could say, Ego is showing up. When ego shows up, or that self-view that says, uh, I'm special, or someone's less special, or someone's more special, whatever little game our mind is playing, they're posturing some form of pride, some form of separation. When that's happening, you with me so far? When that's happening, that is, in fact, just a moment of pride. It's just pride. 
And it's a beautiful thing to begin to recognize that that's pride. And many people have been reporting to me, wow, they just see their negative self-views, they, they see their comparisons, they see how they get triggered into, into attack and blame, into this, and all the different strategies of, of that sense of me and sense of mind that shows up innocently, unbidden, from time to time. It's important to notice that there are also moments where none of that's going on, where we're not being anyone in particular separated out from the stream of life, where we're not the wave that's gotten separated from the ocean, where we're simply just living out our lives, being just our natural selves, you might say. But then there are those moments when the triggers, the ignition happens. Someone says something. Some feeling of unpleasantness or pleasantness is triggered and that often causes a contraction, and then it's followed in a little sequence of liking or disliking, then craving or averting, and then becoming, trying to get rid of, and then strategizing, then building the whole house that ego builds. And this happens very quick. And it's simply an event of the arising of self. Not much going on. But what often happens in that moment and even the moments when we start to notice it, is that there is another, maybe even more subtle kind of ego that says, ooh, that's really gross. There's my ego again. Any of you have that one? There's my ego again. When am I ever going to get rid of this? I'm doing practice, I have concentration, but then, but I still have this thing. And often that little, that new little identity, I call it the, the meditator or the, um, the seeker, goes a little bit unnoticed and it's still preoccupied with that, other, that previous ego trip that went on and missing that there's a whole new construction project that's been happening under the radar called I'm not doing so well here or I'm I really caught that one or just some version of a new ego trip the reason I wanted to talk about this is because it's not so much a problem that those various moments of personality view, especially the ones that are recognized, not a problem at all. What becomes a problem are the, those various reactions to the, that, the embellishments, the story that gets added to that simple arising of an ego moment. When I was, some of you have heard this story before, but when I was doing a lot of intensive practice. Now I'm much more of a householder and my ideas of a hundred day householder retreat sounds more interesting to me. But when during those days that uh, I was a uh, much more of an intensive practice uh, walla, so to speak, that's the Sanskrit or the Hindi word for person or man or I was a practice walla. I was really into intensive practice and I would 
literally go from one three-month retreat to another, to another, to another, to another, and I couldn't get enough. And during those days, I was seeing a lot of the construction project of, of self, and it was painful to see. But there was that domain of, of self, of the personality view of the self-story that was a little bit more subterranean. And I happened to hit a point in my practice where I, my mind was very clear, very, my heart was very tender, I felt as though I had no skin at all, I felt as though I was uh, privy to this great secret of how extremely painful life is. <laughs> in this very subtle way uh, that the Buddha described called uh, in his teaching on what's called Sankara Dukkha or Sankara Dukkha the, the subtle and constant impingement of our doors of perception a continual relentlessness of conditioning that is presenting itself moment after moment that we're carried along by this stream of contingency, and this stream of causes that we can't stop, that we just can't stop the constant impingement of our sense doors. And we would all love to stop it some way, and that's why we love to go to sleep at night, because at least we give, get, as the one person said, we get that experience of the poor person's nirvana we get to it all stops well I was really face to face the I who I took myself to be was face to face with with this Sankara Dukkha and it felt as though every cell of my body was being impinged on and because I was open and sensitive, everything hurt. Every door, every sound hurt, every sight hurt. The wind that would normally blow through the trees and feel pleasant to listen to the wind blow through the trees became deafeningly loud, extremely painful. And I was seeing it. I was having some serious insight. And on top of or underneath the serious insight was some serious pride about having, having serious insight. And fortunately, it didn't feel so fortunate at the time, but fortunately, I had a teacher who, was a, uh, who had radar for pride and, and took one look at me and said, this guy needs to be knocked down a few pegs. Meanwhile, I'm suffering, busy suffering, really into seeing the suffering of everything and, and not recognizing how full of myself I was around how much I was suffering. And so I reported to him, as I often did, I reported my experience and the, the essential methodology of reporting your experience was to tell what you're noticing whether you made a mental label of it, whether you noted it, and what happened to it when you noted it. How did that experience that you noticed behave? Did it continue? Did it get stronger? Did it go away? What replaced it? And, and did you 
Did you simply note it as it was? So the whole point of that methodology was to, I'd say, highlight any kind of embellishment that might get added to that experience, any kind of story that would be told about what was being noticed. It would also help protect our mind from spinning out in some, some kind of narrative. And as I reported what I thought was a very clear report, very detailed, everything I noted, I saw his, the teacher's face just cringe. And I've told other stories here about in other interviews where he would, he would respond to my reporting by picking up a book and, start, and starting to read or just sneering at me or everything that came out of my mouth would, he would throw back as though I had said the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard. Well, this time he was a little bit more charitable other than his cringing. I reported all of this great insight into suffering and he didn't really point to the pride that I had fallen into. He didn't really... He instead highlighted the way that I was embellishing what was going on. And that's how, that, was my, that was the little doorway to see how much pride had seeped into this situation. And how he highlighted my embellishment is after I talked to him about the, my great insight into dukkha, as I began to bow, as you did the formality after you would report to him, as I began to bow and leave, he said to me in his kind of halting English, he said, just see dukkha as dukkha. Now that may not sound that interesting to you, just see dukkha as dukkha, but for me it was like a sword that just cut through this massive story that I hadn't, I wasn't even aware I had, uh, I had built around my insight into dukkha. I had not just seen dukkha and, as dukkha. I had built a monument to dukkha. I had been bowing at this, the, the altar of dukkha, building it up to be the most important thing in the whole world and me to be the most important meditator for having seen it. And so having that, um, that simple cutting through, this simple passage, just see dukkha as dukkha, became a, a template, uh, a way of checking, literally for the last 25 years, what's happening right now and what's being added to it. So that includes those moments when I recognize that there's pride or there's judgment or there's, uh, there's disgust or whatever it is. There's self. There's selfing. So now, in, I don't always use those words, but I'd like to encourage everyone here since your mindfulness, mindful attention has, is likely increasing and, and self-awareness is increasing, see if it's possible the next time you 
And it's, it, there is an inevitable next time that you see the arising of pride or some kind of personality view. See if it's possible the next time you can simply see ego as ego. See self as self. And if you can't see self and self as self, and you see self as as self, and and all the embellishments, just see embellishing as embellishing. Our minds embellish; they embroider, they add to, they they build. They our minds in their creative nature, they, they are in the, const- in the construction business. This is what they do. So to be able to see that for just what it is. So there's nothing in anything that I've said that suggests that you have to get rid of anything. You simply have to use everything that is noticed, everything that our mind does, as our path, as our practice, as our manure for mindful attention. Even the most embarrassing, prideful embellishment is just an embarrassing, prideful embellishment. That's all. As same teacher as the chant, the quote from the chant that I played, Nosho Ken Rinpoche says, nothing to do and nothing to undo. You don't have to do anything about your mind. You simply have to see it for what it is. And it, it self-liberates. But it requires that, that mindful attention. Any questions about what I just said? Did it make any sense? <laughs> Anybody want to confess their embellishments this evening? Anyone build any monuments to the great one who lives within? You know, unfortunately I can't... Very good, very good. Noticing it, allowing it, letting it be, letting it go. Anyone else want to talk about an embellishment, please? Uh, I tend to think a lot about like, my own personal story, but then I notice when I'm around other people that I'm like looking at their stories and their individual story, and so then I like kind of congratulate myself that I'm noticing everybody else <laughs> when indeed it's still revolving around. He says, I, he says he notices that he's often into his personal story, but when he's around other people, he's proud of himself for being interested or into other people's stories, but, that's, but it's still more about him and how proud he is. Very good. Proud of you. <laughs> Kevin. When one sits in pain, 
He says only he's heard that the only way around pain is through. Seems like it's dangerous to sit too long in pain and Right. Yeah, sometimes pain sh- says that something needs to be changed. Well, the, I think this is this intersects with what I'm talking about tonight. I think your question I think it intersects well because if I'm busy embellishing whatever pain that I may be experiencing if I'm building a story, I may not be very attuned to the actuality of that pain, the felt sense of it, the direct experience of it. I'm, I may have disconnected completely, and I'm off spinning out about what it means about me. And in, when I do that, I'm not very attuned to what may be needed on the spot, what may be needed. I'm just perhaps reacting in a habitual way, which is to go into my go into my story. And because I'm not right there with the experience of pain, it's hard for me to know that this pain is not a useful one to, uh, to stay with. This is one that needs some kind of, of wise response. It needs some love. It needs some, some medicine. It needs to change postures. It needs something. But if I'm caught up in the embellishment about the pain... One, I'm, I tend to be adding to the pain. Two, I may not be able to respond to it lovingly or wisely. So the point isn't to stay with something. It's to, it's to, to be with it as much as possible in its simplicity and then let, let it speak. Let it, let it tell you what it, what's needed. Now, it's actually quite rare just to feel pain as pain. There's usually instantaneously the alarm bells, and sometimes the alarm bells are excessive, and they, they're, so, they're so habitual that they don't necessarily reflect uh, the real danger. It's that, it's that overactive limbic system, that primitive brain, that for many of us didn't develop quite any of you have a kind of startle response really quick startle response yes that's that's often starts when at a very young age when you don't have uh, when some kind of grounding didn't happen some kind of trauma and then pretty soon there's certain parts of our brain that keep us in a sen- in a sense of balance don't develop and then we habitually go into that fight or flight or into that alarm state and often we'll miss the, the suchness of, of whatever's going on because of our alarm. And that often stimulates more thinking and more worrying. And so practice is one of those ways of rewiring our system to more carefully be able to take in what's here see things as they are, and then wisely respond instead of react. I'm not a neurologist or anything, but I'm learning a little bit about this through having a seven-year-old daughter who has a little bit of that startle thing when you throw a ball. (laughs) Please, Noemi. 
how other how other planes is about some people are more sensitive to other planes or to more universal pain and not just their own personal pain. Is that real or is that ego? I think it, I'm, uh, I'm open to that possibility. I'm a bit of an agnostic. I don't know, but I'm, I like to be open to that, but I wouldn't want to make a conclusion about it and then build a whole... A whole absolute story, unless I really knew for certain. Milarepa. Yes. Well. Are there mystics? I, I have, my intuition says yes, but at the same time, well, the, that's a really good question. There is the, there is the domain of, 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 of image and symbol and story that has a kind of relative truth and especially if somebody has been raised and imbued with a certain field of symbols in their consciousness, in their community they're more likely to find real that which to somebody else would be invisible one could say that that's still a creation it's still a creation of mind but that's not to it, but because we know it's a creation of mind or consider it a creation of mind, it doesn't mean that we dismiss it. And the same is true about our own stories and the meaning that we give to things. We don't dismiss it, but we see that there are, as you to, we'll use your expression, there are planes of existence. There are, there are the stories of what's going on. There's the, even in even with Milarepa, there's the imagery, there's the symbolism of what's going on. And then if, you, if Milarepa were to bring his attention closer and closer and closer to the bare reality, when you put anything closely under a microscope, the, the concepts about whatever it is just melt. And all concepts, all imagery reveals itself as just approximations of reality and what's discovered in that infinitesimal immediacy is the unspoken, the, the, the indescribable. Uh, and that's, that, has to be, that has to be pointed to Otherwise, we take the, all the symbols to be, to, to be absolute. And that's what we're trying not to do.
clay. Not to do the absolute any in any direction. Either cling to emptiness or cling to forms and images and symbols. We just want to be free in the midst of it all. I like the word agnostic, but the, not in the skeptical sense, but in the in the open sense. Pleasure. I think we've we've actually Sarah, you can have the last word. Oh, that's a good... I'm glad you brought that back. If you, if you pick up on other people's pain, what's the question? Is it, is it story? Is it ego? In general, is it empathy or interdependence? In general, whatever it is that produces the heart's uh, quivering or the trembling heart in response to either an idea of somebody or a direct experience, it's a good thing. We want to we want to open ourselves to to our hearts being tender and not hardening and not hiding away in fear and in dullness. So in general, that's a good thing. On the other hand, there are many who who have had that sense that they're picking up on universal or or groups pain and and subtly form an identification with being a sensitive or the identification with or kind of get caught up in the story of it. And sometimes that person, because they have attributed the pain that they're experiencing to others, feel a little bit, or not just a little bit, a lot out of control. Feel as though they're kind of helpless, that they that they're at the mercy of, at the effect of others. So, in general, I like to, regardless of whether it's ego or whether it's empathy, I think as a working principle, whenever we feel pain, we should treat it as our own. Because if we work with it as our own, it it usually is a lot more workable. We can attend to ourselves. We can, we can soothe ourselves. We can take space. We can do various things. It's, I found that it's not so helpful to think of it in general as I'm picking up other people's pain. As it tends, I think it does tend toward a kind of egoism and a kind of helplessness. Mm-hmm. We do have to call it a day. And we didn't get to the 100-day retreat. Next week... Uh, maybe I'll just say a few things or uh, encourage you to do a few things. The 100-day retreat, as I mentioned last week, some of you may not have been here. We're a little smaller in size tonight, so um, 
have to repeat this several times anyway. The idea of a 100-day retreat is to, both as a, a support to us keeping the fire of practice burning in our life and also a protection from the tendency in our lives to just be carried along by this, our habits, our cultural conditioning, and to pretty much go unconscious. And then to uh, relegate our spiritual practice to Tuesday nights or to retreats and not realize that we have this capacity to have a, our life... Uh, to have practice be the hub around which we do every element of our life. And one of the ways that one can actualize that is to, at least for a time, and perhaps this will extend, create some kind of supportive structure in your life, and we're doing it in this case as a 100-day practice period, where you take certain periods every day and you practice one example meaning when you get being when you go home in the evening we often one of the habitual things that we do as a culture is we plop down on the couch flip on the tv or raid the refrigerator and shovel in some food to numb us out to deal a little bit with that sankara dukkha that i talked about and turn on the tv or something and pretty much check out so instead not as an absolute renunciation, but rather the first thing that you do when you go home, this is just one idea, is to do a little practice. Do a little reading of something that inspires you, that reminds you of your values. Do a little walking practice. Uh, do a little chanting, singing, something that's, that's very, um, that is soothing, healing not just mind-numbing. So that could be one of your practice periods. I like to think of if everyone could consider the idea of four different periods of practice a day, and this is just for the structure. Ideally, you want to carry the mindfulness, the love, the practice through the day, but just as a start, think about four different periods of the day. They can be short, they can be long, all your own, but what? how would you like to create a retreat for yourself? An in-your-life, in-the-middle-of-your-life retreat. Will it, will it include a sitting when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed in the evening? Will it include some reading time? Will it include some special effort on something that's really difficult in your life? Every single day for 100 days, you put attention. You know, that somebody said, you said to the way to through the way out of pain is through it as rumi put it the cure for pain is in the pain turn toward it as he also said if you're a friend of god fire is your water you should wish to have a 100,000 set of moth wings so you can burn them one set a night so some 100,000 or some 100 uh, moth wings to turn t- to um, to set on fire every day to to Move toward that thing that's a little challenging. It may be that do something in regard to that person who's difficult in your life, that, that uh, task that you have not been able to fulfill, a little bit of effort every day for 100 days. That could be one of your practice periods. Another idea I had is one of the practice periods would be to do some kind of act of 
of service or generosity, whether you're giving a gift, a kind word, you're doing actually some active social engagement, could some little thing, you can make it up. Again, any of these, none of the, you don't have to use any of these. Consider just during this next week and during the next month what your retreat would look like. And it's going to be your own. What would you be interested in, willing to commit to? And it will have, I will tell you more of the elements that I think are, are important and some of the inspirations for doing such a thing next week, but we don't have time for that now. So good luck, good luck, even thinking about what you would do. As always, to me, this is a, um, a time that we have been as part of the flow of our life, this practice period is, is a time where ideally we are cultivating, we are exercising the four efforts, the, the effort to cultivate what is wholesome, to abandon what's unwholesome, to let go of what doesn't work, to maintain and enhance what's wholesome, and uh, to, um, to protect ourselves from from the uh, unwholesome things from intruding on our consciousness. So we're protecting ourselves, we're maintaining, and we're cultivating by doing such a thing. And if you feel any benefit from this kind of activity, from sitting together, from sharing teachings and confessing our delusions, (laughs) all of that, if you feel any benefit from that, we can, and it's one, of, one part of our practice, we can remember that we don't uh, exist independently, that we can share this. We're sharing it whether we know it or not, but we can enhance that sharing by uh, doing it intentionally. So as we always do, if there's, we consider if there's been any benefit to us being together, uh, we take those benefits, those fruits, those blessings, and we send it out as a blessing to all beings that we share this universe with. The blessing that we share is uh, punctuated with a a deep wish that all beings can cultivate the wholesome in their life, have more happiness, more sukha, and less dukkha, more sukha dukkha, (laughs) more sukha, less dukkha, more happiness, less suffering, that all beings can taste that suchness, that reality beyond all of our uh, separations and distinctions, that sacred happiness that's without sorrow, always available here and now. And a deep wish that all beings can grow in serenity, be in harmony with things as they are, be less reactive, less aversive, uh, less egoic, perhaps, uh, a deep wish that our life here today and for those hundred days that you practice and for your whole life be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all beings be free. just another reminder of our um, any 
generosity that you can practice for the room rental, much appreciation. Any practice of generosity for the teaching being offered, whether it's me or anyone taking the seat, much appreciated. One of our practice periods is to practice dana in whatever form, and this way is as good as any. <laughs> and much appreciation for any support that we get for the room rental and for the teaching. Thank you. Thank you. Just a reminder also, as you leave, there are still some spaces left. I don't know, for those of you who may not have gotten the email, there are some young adult spaces open, first come, first serve, for the upcoming retreat that I'll be doing December 7th to the 12th, and, and just general spaces as well. I don't know, you'll have to go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.